I've been hearing so much the last <clears throat> couple of months about y'all and your experiences with All In. Uh, lots of emails and Facebook messages and people putting stuff on Instagram and, and even on YouVersion, you can ex- we're exchanging notes back and forth all the time and liking each other's activity and highlights and stuff like that. Uh, one thing, I don't know how to do this, but I've noticed a bunch of you doing these uh, verse images. You can like uh, find an image and then overlay it with, with like a verse and uh, several of you do a lot of that. One of you, uh, Emily Tenner, has done some that are really cool. And I thought I would just start out this morning by sharing one. If, by the way, I've got allergies. And I have, I, I'm on such a cocktail of Zyrtec and Benadryl and other stuff. It's going to be crazy. So we'll just, the Holy Spirit works through our weaknesses. And I think at first service, I read a verse that was totally different than whatever was on the picture. And Barbara Cooper politely said, hey, you might just, so I'm just going to read this straight off the screen. So this is from one of our all-in readings, because whatever I put down there was not right. Uh, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior, Psalm 18.2. She read that in her all-in readings and and then created that image, and very cool, very cool. So let's keep going, let's keep it up. God is speaking to us, and God is shaping us through the word, and it's cool because it's happening all together as a family this year. I love it. All right, another image. This one, uh, in theory, could be worth more monetarily. It is the image of a painting by Goya. I don't know much about art, but I assume if you have much art history background, you would recognize that as a Goya, it's worth around $2 million, uh, $2 million I think. Um, this one, however... The strange thing about it, it's not really a Goya, okay? It's a counterfeit. It's a forgery, a fake. Um, but the story around this really got my attention. I enjoyed it uh, maybe a little too much as I was reading this story this week. You see, these two Spanish con artists had this forgery, and they negotiated a deal to sell it for 1.7 million Swiss francs, they had a, also a forged um, certificate of authenticity. The buyer was a super wealthy Arab sheik, and uh, they were going to do this deal. They actually did the deal. Ah, oh, the beautiful thing about this, though, is they were selling the fake. The sheik actually paid them 1.7 million Swiss francs counterfeit counterfeit money. Yeah. They say two wrongs don't make a right, but I think in this case they did, man. I love it. And somebody needs to make a movie out of this. They both ripped each other off. The con men are in jail. They got caught. I don't know what happened to the, uh, to the fake shake, but uh, who knows. But it got me to thinking about, <clears throat> you know, what's real what has, what has value, what's authentic versus maybe copies. And, of course, the, the best way to tell counterfeit anything, you know, money or paintings, is to, is to be very familiar, familiar with what's real, uh, with what's original, what, with what's authentic, and you know that like the back of your hand, and then you can spot fakes. Well, this morning in James chapter 2, I think that's exactly what James is going to do with regard to faith. He is going to present us with a perfect image of biblical faith. What is faith? 
Um, what is the relationship between faith and, and works? How do those two fit together? What is saving faith? He's going to present those things to us this morning. <clears throat> and he's also going to show us some different um, versions of faith, if you will, um, some phony copies of faith that we may encounter along the way as well so that we will be able to spot those as well. So let's go to James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and without daily food, <clears throat> you come upon one. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is flatlined. It's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Congratulations, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So I grew up hearing phrases, and, and you may uh, have heard these as well, especially if you grew up in our, in our tradition, in our tribe. I grew up hearing these phrases a lot. Um, essential to salvation, one phrase. Necessary to salvation, same, version, same, same idea, two different phrases. And usually it was in the context of what is, quote, essential to salvation or what is necessary to salvation. The phrase that James uses, James uses here when he talks about faith and he talks about salvation, he says in verse 14, can such a faith, a faith without works, can such a faith save a person? A faith which is belief, unaccompanied by action. Um, is that version of faith, is that actually authentic? Is that faith according to the Bible? Okay, that's the question he's asking today. And I think what we see in chapter 2 is that James, I think, is even shocked by the question itself. Um, faith, the idea of faith without works... I mean, belief without any action accompanying that, James seems to believe that's just, those are kind of absurd questions to start with. So let's use this as an opportunity this morning, just for starters, to kind of frame our discussion, to kind of reset the salvation question, okay? To reset the salvation question, you can write this down, it's on the outline this morning. <clears throat> it's this, when we define salvation as the fulfillment of minimum requirements for entrance into heaven, we impoverish it, we impoverish faith, we impoverish salvation, and we diminish Christianity. Okay? Think of it like this. You guys have probably all been to weddings before. Um, imagine this wedding the minister with the bride and the groom and the 
moment has come where the minister is reciting or, or, is, or is proclaiming those vows, you know, those beautiful vows, um, till death do us part, in sickness and health, and in, in, in riches and in rich and poor. Again, the allergy medicine there. I can't remember the vows very well. And the idea, of course, is the bride and groom will recite these back. But I want you to imagine, it's a little different this time, the groom just kind of interrupts those vows as the, as the preacher is, is, is proclaiming those and says, hang on, I have a question. That's, that's beautiful and everything. I want to know, though, what is the bare minimum I have to agree to to make this marriage happen? Okay? What is essential, but nothing more, you know, for me to actually be married, to leave this place married? <clears throat> now, that, may, my, that might make a nice SNL ske- sketch. Um, it would make a really lousy beginning to a relationship, a marriage covenant relationship. I think we can agree on that. Imagine filling out a job application. You really want this job. You really need this job. You fill it out. At the bottom, you put, hey, in case I get the job, could, could you just tell me what is the bare minimum I need to do to keep the job? It's kind of, yeah, it's funny. It's just it's so absurd. It's just funny. Now imagine Jesus walks up to you, all right? Jesus walks up to you, and he is looking into your eyes with a love that you have never seen before, not from your mother, not from your children, not... He, he, he just loves you so much, and you can just feel that. You can see that. He radiates it. He's holding out his nail-scarred hands. And you say to Jesus, um, I think I'm interested in this whole salvation thing. It sounds really good, but Jesus, could you just tell me what is the minimum I have to do to get into heaven? Can, can you tell me that? I mean, what, what is the least amount of obedience uh, what is the least amount of, of doctrinal truth that I need to agree to? I mean, do, at baptism, do I really have to do that? Is that absolutely required? Is that essential? Wouldn't that just be weird? I mean, it would be worse than weird. It'd be pretty, it'd just be terrible. And really, honestly, that's, salvation is between you and the Lord Jesus, right? I mean, it's not me, it's not your grandmother or anybody else. It's between you and the Lord Jesus. So I think that's a pretty real scenario in the spiritual sense of you and Jesus. Do you really want to be negotiating the minimum with Jesus after all he's done for you? With how much he loves you? I've never liked those phrases, essential to salvation I've, or, or necessary to salvation. I've never liked those phrases. Um, they just seem weird to me. Um, if, I think if you really come to the point where you appreciate the gospel, I mean, you don't just know it, you appreciate the gospel, you appreciate what Jesus did for you, how much he loves you, I think those questions, you're just not going to ask them, really. Um, salvation, yes, it's a free gift. Salvation is, is from grace. Um, we cannot earn it in any way, shape, or form. Putting your faith in that, in that Christ who saved you, who went to the cross for you, who loves you that much, putting your faith in that 
it will change you, right? It will manifest itself, not just up here in some new belief you've adopted, but manifest itself in the way you conduct your life, okay? So this kind of minimalistic view of salvation really impoverishes and diminishes Christianity. It really does. And I think it does a couple of things, or three different things at least to us, if we really focus on that. Oh, salvation. Well, let's talk about the threshold, the minimum. I think one thing it does, does this on your outline this morning, it makes us consumeristic. Okay? Consumer, it, salvation is like a product that I obtain. Um, and honestly, if, if you're talking about a minimalistic view, it's a product that I obtain on sale. How cheap can I get the salvation, Jesus? You got a discount running that doesn't include any, you know, anything except saying yes today. It's just kind of weird, isn't it? This consumeristic view, a product I obtain for myself. That's kind of what it feels like when we talk about the minimum. Also, it, besides consumeristic, I think it leads us to a futuristic view. Not in the good sense of like planning and strategy and working toward a goal. Futuristic view in terms of salvation. Oh yeah, that's something I get. It's my ticket punch to heaven. And then I can just kind of ride out my life here and wait for heaven one day. Hmm. It's not what we see in the Gospels, is it? As Jesus goes around talking to people like Andrew, James, and John, and, and Mary, and Mary Magdalene, and Martha, and he's telling these folks, follow me. I have a brand new life for you right here. Salvation doesn't start when you die. Salvation starts the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Um, and this futuristic kind of ticket punch to heaven view that doesn't transform, that's really not what we see in the New Testament, is it? Also, I think it can, the minimalistic view of salvation can make me legalistic legalistic that word maybe was overused for a time I think it's very appropriate here I think it helps us think about what it does to us to think about minimum requirements it makes us legalistic defining it through minimum requirements makes it something salvation something that I achieve by getting all the steps right rather than something I gratefully receive through Christ so when we're talking about minimum requirements, what is the least I can do? What's, what's just necessary? What, what's the essential? Um, it focuses on my part, right? It fo focuses on what I do, on which boxes I need to check, instead of where the focus needs to be, which is on the gospel. Christ accomplished it. It's his work that saves me. Not my work. And we know that. But we need to be reminded of that, I think. By the way, I, I've never liked that expression. Our movement doesn't, you or our tribe doesn't use it as much. Um, but you might recognize other people using it. Say, I've never liked the expression, I got saved. Right? You know, I was at summer camp in junior high and I got saved on April the 12th or something. 
because it sounds consumeristic as well. So some of these ways that we talk about salvation can tend to objectify it and turn it into something that's not very much like what we see in the Scripture. So James and then the Apostle Paul, they're both going to affirm for us this morning that, um, that faith and works very naturally go together. They're actually not two separate things. Okay? They're actually one thing. Faith and works married together are one thing. That is biblical faith. It is beyond belief. Okay, biblical faith. Beyond belief. Um, it is an inside-out movement of God in my life that's going to manifest itself in my conduct, in the way I live. So James is going to give us, in chapter 2, four examples to make his point. The first example, you probably uh, were amused by it in, in the first few verses because it's a really silly example. I think James was, was trying to get us to smile a little bit with that example. It's the silliness, um, the craziness of looking at a brother or sister in need. Not just in need, they don't have food. They don't even have clothes to wear. And you see that person, your brother, your sister, and you say, Hey, all the best, bro. Hope it works out okay. And you just keep walking. How weird is that? You just say, man, good luck with that. I'm sorry about your situation. I, I got to go, though. I know your life is hanging in the balance there. You don't even have food, but hope it all works out. He says, faith without works is, is like, it's as silly as that. It's as silly as that. Then, of course, he uses the example of Abraham. The scriptures teach us that with Abraham, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So James says, what did his faith, this faith that was credited to him as righteousness, what did Abraham's faith look like? Well, Abraham's faith was a faith that obeyed. It was a faith that followed. It was a faith that took his precious son Isaac up onto Mount Moriah, bound him, and was prepared to surrender him to the Lord. It was a faith that moved. It was a faith that trusted. It was a faith that acted. Example number three James gives us is the example of Rahab. Now, Rahab is an interesting lady. She was a harlot. Many scholars believe, most I think believe, she was a prostitute. Okay? She lived and worked in the city of Jericho, pagan city. Um, she was not a Jewish person. But she came to know about Yahweh through these Hebrew spies. Remember, they're checking out the land. And a couple of them are there spying inside Jericho, which is a target for the, uh, the Jewish people to conquer as they enter into the land. And, and Rahab comes to faith. For Rahab, that means she lodges these men. She feeds them. She takes care of them. When the police come looking for them, she hides them. She helps them escape. That's Rahab. Goes from being a harlot to a hero. 
in Jewish history because of her faith. And then finally, the fourth image, the fourth example James gives us. Um, if you're asking, but James, I'm, I'm still not sure that faith really has to be accompanied by works. I'm not totally convinced on that. Then James gives us example number four. And example number four is faith without works is like a body. A dead body. A cadaver. So James, we want to know about the genuine article. Tell us about biblical faith. Um, if it's more than checking boxes, if it's more than minimum requirements, what is it? Faith, according to James, is beyond belief. Write this down on the outline this morning. Biblical faith is inside out. Um, more than mere belief, more than intellectual assent to an idea. Faith is where your trust and your love for Jesus shape your entire life. They give you a calling on your life. They shape your conversations. They shape your conduct. Um, your faith shapes your choices. It's more than just in your head saying, yeah, I believe that. I believe the gospel. Biblical faith is more. Faith is beyond belief. Um, so here are four things I think that James wants you and I to know and embrace about the genuine, real thing, biblical faith. The first is this. Inside-out faith demonstrates what I really believe. Okay? All right? Actions speak louder than words. Have you heard that before? Um, what I do will be a much more reliable indicator of what I really believe than what I say. Okay? Than what I declare that I believe. Watch my actions to tell what I really believe. Um, you can tell whether or not a husband really loves his wife. And it's not going back to that VHS or DVD and looking at them exchange vows in that beautiful wedding ceremony. That's not how you tell. You can tell it by how they speak to their wife. And when she's not around, you can tell if a husband loves his wife by how he talks about his wife. And you can see the demonstration of that love day to day um, in how they serve their spouse in large and small ways. You can tell if a husband really loves his wife. And it's not whether or not they claim to love their spouse. It's not in the vows they recited on their wedding day. You can tell it by how they treat one another, by how their actions bear out what they say they feel about the other. In the same way, with our love for Christ, with our faith in the Lord, James points us to Abraham. And what I want us to do here in verse 22 Let's read, uh, put, put verse 22 up there. If you would read this with me. 
his, Abraham's, his faith and actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. His faith was made complete by what he did. His faith matured because of what he did. He would have had an incomplete faith if he had merely believed and done nothing about it. So check this out. Really, your actions are a far more reliable indicator of what you believe, of what you believe, okay, than what you say, right? So faith is legitimate. If it's the real thing, you can't help but show it. Todd Hunter, an author, shared a an example that I thought was, was powerful, so I'm, I'm going to use that. Um, and I want you to think through this example with me this morning. I think it's pretty helpful. Let's say that you are afraid of flying. I actually have a, a family member, um, not immediate family here today, but I have a family member who is very afraid of flying. So let's say that that's you. You are afraid of flying. You don't really know why. You don't know where that fear comes from. You just know there's no way you're getting on an airplane. But hey, you also see the value of flying. I mean, you'd like to go to Sydney, Australia someday, or you'd like to go to Rome, or you'd like to go to Beijing, China someday, and you know those things are very unlikely to happen unless you overcome your fear of flying. And so you talk to some of your friends who are regular fl flyers, and you, you say, hey, tell me about your experience. What's it like? Um, are you nervous? Uh, what helps you uh, overcome that? Um, so you talk to them. You, you acquaint yourself with the statistics. You know, flying is actually one of the very safest modes of travel. Somebody told me in the foyer a few minutes ago um, that last year there were no deaths according to uh, airplane accidents. Okay, that's not counting bombs and terrorists shooting stuff out of the sky, but, but there were no other deaths, just accidental uh, I don't know about that, but I was like, well, that's interesting. You've read the books on um, overcoming fear of flying. You've joined a support group for people like you where you get to share about your fears and help each other um, kind of overcome those together. So eventually you come to a place where you believe flying is a safe form of transportation. And so when you get to that place... You get on Expedia, you buy yourself a ticket to go to Rome. And that day comes, and you catch that Uber out to DFW, and, and you go through the, the, the check-in and the security, and, it, and they're calling out your group number, and you're like, let's do this. And so you're walking down the jetway toward that plane. And you get to that point where... It's time to step from the jetway onto the aircraft. There's that little like one inch, you know, space there that you have to step over. And when you get there, you notice the, the skin of the airplane, the body of the airplane, and, and you can see those thousands and thousands of rivets that are holding it together. You notice through the little window there in the jetway that there is a maintenance worker down underneath the aircraft fixing something. 
And at that moment, it hits you. The second you step across that threshold, you will be entering a new reality, and there's no coming back from that. And so there at the last minute, you turn around. You head back up the ramp. You simply refuse to go, I can't do it. I won't do it. Now let me ask you something. In that story, do you really believe that it's safe to fly? I mean, do you really believe that it's safe to fly? Now, it may be that you understand intellectually the statistics. You understand up here that it is safe to fly. Um, you can even admit your life would be richer and, and better off if you did fly. But until you are prepared to get on board and fasten your seatbelt, you don't really believe in flying. Until you're willing to take that step and cross into that new reality, you don't really believe in flying. Well, James points out that your actions, what you do, is a far more reliable indicator of what you believe than what you say, than your declarations. Um, now, you can know a lot of information about the Bible, uh, you could pass a pop quiz on the book of Judges that they're going to do LTC on this year. You, you know the basic the theological premises of the New Testament. Um, and that's all very good. But you haven't really crossed that threshold of faith into the new reality of the kingdom. That place where your belief and your lifestyle work together. To honor Jesus as Lord and Savior. Faith is, is crossing that threshold, isn't it? And here's another important thing that James wants us to know about the genuine article about faith. Number two on the outline here. Inside out faith is the kind demonstrated in Scripture. Surprise, surprise. That's what he spent most of his time doing there in chapter 2, giving us Abraham and Rahab and talking through those examples. Now, why does James cite that example? Why does James, out of all the, the men and women of Scripture, why does he cite Abraham? Well, Abraham was regarded as the Jewish people as being the model of faith. That is what faith looks like. Look at Abraham. And Paul, speaking to believers like us, even Gentile believers like us, he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, that Abraham for us is our father in the faith. So he is the billboard of what faith looks like. So James uses Abraham as an example of, this, of what faith looks like, the, the marriage of lifestyle and belief. Verse 25, Rahab, same thing. Um, same thing. So for us as Christ followers, obviously, um, the focal point for us is Jesus himself. How did he model this? How did he walk in, in faith? Um, Acts chapter 10, verse... Well, a place we go, but here's one. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus, what? He went around doing good. He went around doing good. Healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's faith. 
It's walking with the Lord. Inside-out faith, a faith that is beyond belief, is the genuine article, the one that we see modeled over and over and over by the great uh, faithful women and men that we read about in the Scriptures. They were imperfect people. They were certainly imperfect. But they crossed that line and they walked with the Lord. Number three, inside-out faith. And this is where the rubber meets the road today. This is where we get really relevant, okay? Inside-out faith is what the world longs to see. It's what the world, I mean, the unbelieving, secular world out there, it's what they want to see. How many people do you work with or are your neighbors or you run into? How many of those people admire Jesus? I would venture to say virtually all of them. How many of them hold Jesus in this high esteem, but yet not so much with the church? It's what James is talking about, really, isn't it? People who claim to be Christians, you know, Jesus is my Lord, but whose lives discredit what they claim. They have a religion, they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And the world is sick and tired of that stuff. By the way, if you watch Jesus in the Gospels, and you watch the way he interacted with the religious elite, I think you could say Jesus was sick and tired of that. Of people who say religious stuff, who kind of act religious in church, but who their lifestyles don't reflect it at all. Jesus was sick and tired of that, right? What about... So, so what about the poor? Do we ignore the poor? Do we notice the poor? Do we get to know them? Do we care for the poor? What about social justice questions? What about the way we treat people who are oppressed? What about the way we treat people who Satan is getting the best of? What about, once again, what about... <laughs> Man, what about how we model the marriage covenant? What about that? How do we model that in our churches? If marriage for us is disposable, if it's throwaway, if it's whoops, I think I married the wrong person, divorce, start over again with somebody else, then the world is seeing marriage among us just like they see it in their own circles of unbelievers, right? No different. So why would, they, why would they want anything from the church? You guys don't have anything different to offer? And so I think James, and this is the funny thing, I think James and I think the unbelieving secular culture around us would essentially say the same thing when it comes to this version of faith that does not manifest itself in good works, in, in love, in acceptance, in service. I think James and I think the unbelieving world would, to quote the, the great theologian Elvis Presley, I think they would say, a little less conversation, a little more action, please. Let me see your faith. I love Jesus. I love what I see in Jesus. I want to see that from you. I want to experience that. 
Or as James himself puts it in verses 18 and 19, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe, right? You appear, you believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. (laughs) James is like, awesome. You believe there's one God. You believe Jesus is the Son of God. You have reached demon level. Way to go. So saying I'm a believer, well, okay, but the demonic world, they're, they're believers. They shudder when they come face to face with Jesus. They're believers. So how about this, James says, I'll show you my faith by how I conduct myself. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Now here's the final thing James wants us to know about biblical faith. Number four, this is a biggie, inside out faith is really, it's really the whole purpose for my salvation in Christ. It was never about getting my ticket punched to heaven. I mean, yes, there's eternal life, but it was never centrally about that. That wasn't the big idea. You are saved not just to get your ticket punched to eternal life, but you were saved to join Jesus in this kingdom movement. If we are to be what we were meant to be when he saved us, then we will follow. Our actions will demonstrate our faith. Verse 17 says, in the same way, faith by itself, it is, if it is not accompanied by action, flatline, dead. So back to that original question. <clears throat> what is faith? How does it, how does it fit with works? Are they... Two separate things, I think James is saying no. So how do they fit together in this idea of biblical faith? And actually, I'm going to bounce over to the Apostle Paul because I absolutely love this text on faith and on what we were called to be. Chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, Paul says, and he reminds us, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith... This is not from yourselves, right? It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. For we, here comes the marriage, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. The big idea, the purpose, we were created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love that passage because Paul says in no uncertain terms we can be 100% assured we do not earn our salvation. Okay, We do not merit it in any way, shape, or or, or, way, shape, or form. In fact, God has saved you despite your works, all right? God has saved you despite all the stuff you've done, all the stuff I've done. However, the purpose of my salvation, why God plucked me out of darkness and put me into the kingdom of light, is so that I can become his, I love that, his his workmanship. 
And then I can be about the business of doing all of these good works that he dreamed up for me to do even before I was born. God prepared in advance for us to do. By the blood of the Lamb, by the sacrifice of Jesus, our sins have been washed away. Our salvation has been purchased. We cannot improve on what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We can't improve on the gospel by us adding anything to it or make it somehow more perfect by adding our own stuff to it. But Paul doesn't stop there. Salvation, he says, the whole purpose of that, you were created for this, is to do good works, is to manifest that faith to, to live out the gospel in your, in your life. In other words, God didn't just save you from something. He saved you for something. He didn't just save you from the fires of hell. He didn't just save you from destruction. He saved you for kingdom ministry. That's happening right here, right now. You don't have to wait on that until you die. It started now. So he didn't just save me from destruction. He, he saved me for production. He saved me to partner with him in a lifestyle of doing good in the midst of a world that is dying to get a glimpse of the goodness of Christ. Now, compared to counterfeit versions, if you will, of faith or lesser versions of faith, this is, I think, just gorgeous, isn't it? as it unleashes God's power in my life, not just a ticket punch for some time in the future, God's power released in my life now. And it's gorgeous because it unleashes the church into this broken, dying world to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. And the world is longing to see that. I guess if James, uh, to kind of finish up this morning, I guess if James were here this morning and James had shared everything with us that he shared in James chapter 2 about the nature of faith. I think if he was here this morning, and after church, you walk up to him in the lobby and you say, Hey, James, I still have that question. I mean, this is really important to me, James. James, what is the absolute minimum I can do to be saved? I think, <coughs> I think he'd just shake his head <coughs> and look at you and say, man, I hope you're kidding. I hope you're not serious. <coughs> and so as we close out our time this morning, maybe you feel the need for prayers, uh, something in your own life or in the life of a loved one that you are concerned about, that you want to go before the throne of God. We're just going to open up a space where you can pray with somebody around you, a uh, um, family member, neighbor there on the pew, or connection class folks, or small group, and pray over that. Come pray with me or one of our shepherds as well. Or maybe this morning, it is that moment, right? It is that moment. Will you cross over that threshold and put your life on board with Jesus? Move your life into all that he won for you through his death, burial, and resurrection. We'd love to help you go public with that. 
by being baptized into Jesus, by being immersed in Him and wearing all of that, enjoying that promise of the forgiveness of your sins, the promise of eternal life, but also the calling to make Him your Lord today and tomorrow for the rest of your days here. If we can help you with that, we'd love to. Let's be standing. Let's respond in worship this morning.